This week we're dealing with pneumatology, the study of the ministry and the work of the Holy Spirit. Questions come in about the Holy Spirit, so we're going to deal with it today. Um, I, when I took the class many years ago, we did 16 weeks of studying of the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. So, going to be, we'll be here for dinner. No, but what I'm going to do is we're going to do a jet tour, and I literally mean a jet tour of the study of the pneumatology, the study of the person and the work of Jesus. If you're taking notes, great. If you have your Bibles and you want to follow, that's great. You better be fast because we are going to move very quickly. And I want to hit topics and not get deep into it, but I think important topics of the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. So that's where we're at. We have four headings. If you guys want to put that up because mine's not working here. I don't know what the problem is. Um, four headings, so it's really seven. I'm just trying to trick you. <laughs> Creation, which is talk about the deity of the Holy Spirit. Revelation, inspiration, illumination. We're going to put that all together. Salvation, sanctification, finally, we'll deal with proclamation. Okay, so it's really seven points, but I'm going to make it four so you think you're getting out on time. Okay, so number one, as we talk about it, let's talk about creation. You guys are going to have to move this along for me. Move the slide. Genesis chapter one. Oh, I got it right here too. I'm going to try one more. Should I try one more time? Okay. I have a little thing up here that I can move my slides along. All right, let's see what we got. Okay. Go back one, please. I don't even want it. Okay, good. It's working. Okay. Genesis chapter 1. Very important verse. Very familiar to many of us. The first three verses says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. That sets the stage for everything else we read in Scripture. The earth was without void, was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. In the beginning, it is clear, all reality begins with God. God alone is the creator. God alone is the sustainer of all that we see and all that we don't see. In fact, the prophet Isaiah very simply says in chapter 40, have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, no beginning, no end, the creator of the ends of the earth, he does not faint or grow weary. And what we see very early on, Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, is that God is a God who has been revealed to us as the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. As Christians, we don't worship three gods. We worship one God, just as the Shema says in Deuteronomy, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. We affirm that. And though the Bible does not use the word Trinity per se, it clearly teaches that God has revealed himself in three persons. We're seeing all of that in the Gospel according to Luke. That Jesus claims to be God himself in the flesh. To say that God exists as a Trinity, we sang it actually, is to say that there is one God, one essence, one substance who exists in three equal persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We speak of personhood. We speak of self-conscious knowledge of existence, self-determination, the ability to make decisions. God thinks, God acts, God speaks. Westminster Confession says this, doctrine of the Trinity in the unity of the Godhead. There are three persons of one substance, power and eternity. God the Father, God the Son, 
and God the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit. One God, indivisible, distinct without division. I need to make that really clear as we get into the deity of the Holy Spirit. So when we talk about the Holy Spirit, how he, he, he dwells within us, we'll look at that. He purifies us. He's no less than God himself. The simple evidence is found, again, in Genesis 1, the Spirit of God. In the New Testament, Romans chapter 8, verse 9, he is called not only the Spirit of God, but then Paul goes on and calls him the Spirit of Christ. And there's that unity, Father, Son, and Spirit. And the Spirit is of God, not because God created the Spirit, but because he shares God's nature from all eternity. He's not only called God the Spirit, but what we find in Scripture, and we'll just hit a couple of these, is the interchangeable between the Holy Spirit and the Word God. They're interchanged in the Word of God. Acts chapter 5. You know the story. It's a historical narrative of a man and a woman, a husband and wife named Ananias, his wife Sapphira. They sold a piece of property in Acts chapter 5. And although they promised to give all the proceeds of the, of the property in which they, they sold, they were going to give it to the apostles. It wasn't mandated. It was all voluntary. They kept the money, some of the money for themselves. Acts chapter 5 verse 3 says this. Peter says to Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not yours for your disposal? Why is it, he says, that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. You lied to the Holy Spirit. You lied to God of the same Substance, one God, Father, Son, and Spirit, right? And you can't lie to a force. Some people see the Holy Spirit as, as simply a force. But you can only lie to a person. The Holy Spirit is a personal being like the Father and the Son in the Godhead. He listens and he responds. It's not impersonal. The Spirit is not an impersonal it or simply an influence. He's described over and over in the Scripture Grammatically, in personal terms. Now, you understand that? Personal terms. The Greek word for spirit is pneuma. It's neuter in gender, but the Bible uses it over and over, speaking of the Holy Spirit, in masculine pronouns, him and her, to refer to the Spirit. We see that all over Scripture, particularly in Jesus' teaching, John 14 through 16. John 14, 15. If you love me, Jesus says... You will keep my commandments, and I, Jesus, will ask the Father, and he will give you another. The word another is the Greek word alos. It means of the same nature, of the same kind. He will give you another. Another helper, that's the word paraclete. You've heard it before. To be with you forever. Now notice what Jesus says. He's the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees who? Sees him, nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. We see that all over Scripture. Those personal pronouns, masculine pronouns, declares that this person, the Holy Spirit, is going to carry on the work of Jesus when Jesus ascends to the Father. Right? Only a person can do another person's work. We see the Holy Spirit also has personal characteristics, like the Father and the Son. He's intelligent. No one comprehends the thoughts of God except by the Spirit of God, 1 Corinthians 2. He has emotions. He can be grieved, Ephesians 4. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. 
The Holy Spirit in Scripture has a will. If you know the story, in Acts 8, Philip is, uh, was told by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit said to Philip, go over and join that chariot, Acts chapter 8. The, of the Ethiopian eunuch who had come to Jerusalem to worship. He's reading the, the prophet Isaiah, go. The Holy Spirit tells him to go. The Holy Spirit in Scripture also possesses all the incommunicable attributes. When I say incommunicable, I mean the attributes that God shares with no one. Okay? There are attributes that God has, we created in His image, that we share, like joy and love. We share that with God. God says, be holy as I am holy. But there's certain things in the nature and the attribute of God, God the Holy Spirit and God the Father and Son, that we do not share. Incommunicable. They don't, they don't communicate them to us. Like eternality. We're not eternal. We have a beginning. The Holy Spirit is eternal. He is self-existent. Romans chapter, uh, excuse me, Hebrews 9. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, offered himself without blemish to God? He's eternal. He's omnipresent. Psalm 139.7. Where could I go? I go up. I go down. Your spirit is everywhere. He's omniscient. All-knowing, these things, the wisdom of God, God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. These, these attributes that only God has, we see the Holy Spirit has in Scripture. He also, not only the attributes of God, but he has the works of God that only God does. Only God creates ex nihilo out of nothing. We see, Hebrew, see excuse me, in Genesis 1, we see that God created out of nothing the Spirit of God was hovering over the earth. It is the Holy Spirit of God who gives life and raised Jesus from the grave. Romans 8, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus, the Holy Spirit from the dead, will give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. We see all this in scripture, that God, the Holy Spirit in creation and redemption, we see it in giving new life. He is he is part of creation. He is, he is there at creation. He's eternal. He's omnipresent. He's omniscient. Over and over and over again, we see this. And Jesus promises them. He said, I've got to go away. You, you'll be better off when I leave. Why? Because I will send the Holy Spirit. I'm only in one place at one time. But when the Holy Spirit comes, he will be in you forever. He will dwell with you. He will go everywhere with you. God, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, was involved in creation of the world, created a mankind, redemption of sinners, and that has great implications, application for us today. Think of it, because of his personhood, we can have a personal relationship with him. He is the one, the Holy Spirit is the one who brings the experience, the very presence of God into our lives. He's the one who dwells in us. Therefore, he is to be ascribed the, the same glory and honor that we give to the Father and the Son. His personhood and work is the expression and execution of what God has planned together and the Father and the Son in complete unity with one another. God the Holy Spirit. When we talk about revelation, we talk about, first thing we mean when we talk about revelation means unveiling, if you've never heard that before. In other words, when we talk about relation, we talk about pulling back the curtain and, and really understanding who God is according to the scriptures. So let me, let me make this statement. Maybe you've never heard it before. No one born 
with a, with a clear understanding of who God is. No one's born with a clear understanding of who God is. In an attempt to know God, we have religious leaders, we have philosophers, and different ways that people speculate about God with all kinds of different and contradictory statements. But God, the creator and sustainer of the universe, chose to reveal himself not through human speculation, but through revelation. God is known not by our own human ability or any kind of instrument. He is known only through, now listen, self-disclosure. It's called revelation. The word revelation, the Greek word is, is apocalypse, means to disclose or to unveil. You see, speculation is the human attempt to to comprehend God, revelation is God's communication to humanity with clarity, knowing things that we could never known unless he makes himself known. That's what the scripture is. That's the revelation of God. And that's what the 66 books of the Bible show us. It's, it's, a, it's an unveiling of who God is. We could not, listen, we could not know God without himself being made known, right? So we could not know him without making himself known. He makes himself known. And what Peter talks about here in 2 Peter chapter 1, whoop, let me go back one. He makes it crystal clear that Peter makes it crystal clear that the ultimate author of Scripture, of the Revelation, is the Holy Spirit, 2 Peter 1.20. No prophecy of Scripture come from someone's own interpretation, Okay. No, no prophecy, no preaching, no, no revelation of Scripture. For prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, not speculation, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Carried along like a, like a, like a, a, a boat. In, in fact, in Acts, it speaks that same Greek word. They were in a storm, and they, they put down the sail and let the boat go wherever the wind took it. So we have this moving of along, this, this carried along by the Holy Spirit. Paul writes this in 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is breathed out by God. Profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, for training in righteousness. Now, the word here, breathed out by God, theonoustos, comes from two words, theos, God, noustos, wind, or, or spirit. And what's interesting about that is the word... Numa, we talked about it, is the Greek word for spirit. But the, 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 the Hebrew word in the Old Testament, when you see the spirit of God, is ruach. Okay? I'm going somewhere with this. Genesis 1-2, the spirit of God, the ruach Elohim of God. Genesis 6-17, ruach, breath of life. Genesis 8-1, ruach is used to describe the wind that God sent when he... When he um, uh, um, over the earth, and it receded the floodwaters. And of course, the Ruach of the Lord, or the Ruach of, of, of Adonai, or, or Elohim, or Yahweh. And in creation, we see God breathe and speak into existence, and releasing the power and act of creation, Father, Son, and Spirit. It's exactly what's happening here in Inspiration. The divine act as God breathed his spirit, the rock, the, the spirit of God, and, and breathes through man and gives us the scriptures, the word of God. It's called inspiration. So you have revelation, you have inspiration. Inspiration is the process, the method of how God revealed himself. It is the work of the Holy Spirit. 
Yes, yeah, real people in real time, I get that, historical settings. Luke, we're looking at Luke. Yes, he had a real DNA. Yes, he used his own experiences and his personalities that recorded the word of God. Yes, but the final authority and authorship of Scripture is God the Spirit. Even the Old Testament prophets speak about God's Spirit working in them. Ezekiel chapter 2. And he, God, spoke to me, Ezekiel says. The Spirit entered into me and set me on my feet and I heard him speaking to me. King David in 2 Samuel, the Spirit of the Lord, the Ruach of Yahweh, speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The Rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God. David, yes, he was, he, he, he was in a particular culture. He had particular circumstances. But he recognized that God was speaking through him. That's why we study the Bible. Because this is a book that exists as a result of the outbreathing. God the Holy Spirit. And within it, it carries the authority of the one who speaks it. It is the spirit who has given the full revelation of God so that all we know about God, all we know about redemptive history, all we know about salvation is a product of the Holy Spirit. And this is where the wheels fall off the wagon um, when some of, my, some of the really crazy, charismaniac, I'll call it, movement, a Pentecostal movement that we see sometimes, I'm not, not throwing everybody in the same boat, but what happens is, maybe you've heard this before, some of them say, you know, I experienced this, 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 this experience I had with the Holy Spirit, and it contradicts the very Holy Spirit that wrote the Scripture. Like, well, if the Spirit stuck you to the ground where you can't get up, it's the same Holy Spirit that said the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. Can't have both. The Holy Spirit writes in the final author of Scripture. Revelation, inspiration. Let me talk a little bit about illumination, okay? What do I mean by illumination? Illumination is the Holy Spirit who enables believers to, to understand or to discern, listen, divine truth. So, inspiration inscribes the Word of God on the pages of Scripture. Illumination inscribes the Word of God on our hearts, Illumination enables us to understand what it means, okay? In fact, in 1 Corinthians, it says that the natural man, the, one, the man or the woman that does not have the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, the one who reveals Scripture, reveals God's, inspired the Word of God, the one who does not have that, look what it says. They don't understand or accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're folly to him. He don't understand. He's not a spiritual being. He don't have the Holy Spirit. He's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. 1 John 2, John says, But the anointing you received from him who abides in you, the Holy Spirit, and you have no need that anyone should teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about everything, and it is true, and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. He's not saying you don't need any human teachers. John wants his readers to remember that the Holy Spirit is the ultimate source of illumination. He does not rule out that there are godly teachers of Scripture. I mean, he's writing the letter. He's teaching the congregation who's reading this letter. 
What he means is you don't need these prophets. You don't need these progressive false prophets who claim new information about Christ beyond the truth of Scripture. False teachers telling you you don't need to study. You just got to just listen to me. You know, that big, fat, sweaty guy with the handkerchief running around saying, give me your money. I saw, I don't want to get too sidetracked here, but I saw one the other day. Oh, my word. This, this gentleman said to the screen, you don't need to pray. You don't need to ask God. I'm telling you what God said. You send me your seed money. And I'm like, whoo. I, I was just hoping something happened, lightning, something. Check everything with the Holy Spirit. Check everything with the Scripture. The Holy Spirit wrote the Scripture. He's the ultimate one. Don't mean we just go off on, on any tangent. But what John is saying, look, we have the anointing. Check everything. Also, listen, let me, let me just say this too. I love some, I, I, I got some favorite Bible teachers. If you don't know it, John Piper's one of them, right? Um, but that doesn't, that doesn't mean I should be lazy in my study of Scripture. Okay? I, I should study and read and trust and rest and ask the Holy Spirit to teach me, even through great men of God, but teach me through the Scriptures. Jesus said in John 14, I, I've, I've spoken to you while I was with you, but the help of the Holy Spirit and the Father said in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. Revelation, unveiling of God, inspiration, writing of Scripture, illumination. I understand the truth because the Spirit of God is teaching me. Now we get to salvation. The first thing we understand about the work of the salvation is, first thing, is that God the Holy Spirit reveals our sin. John 16, 7. I tell you the truth. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is your advantage that I go away. For if I go away, the helper, paraclete, the advocate... Someone who comes alongside you is for you, encouraging you, speaking courageously to you, the helper. If I don't go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I'll send him. And when he comes, he will what? Convict the world of sin, convict the world of righteousness, and convict the world of judgment. He explains what that means, verse 9. Concerning sin, they don't believe me, in me. Concerning righteousness, I'm going to the Father, you see me no more. Concerning judgment... Because the ruler of this world is judged. This is the work of the Holy Spirit in a rebellious, unbelieving world. And the sin we see is unbelief. Now the word convict here, I will convict uh, the world, means to prove guilty. Okay? To prove guilty. It is a word that embraces both the prosecutor and the judge. Sometimes Christians, and I hope I don't ruin this for you, although maybe I should... Sometimes when we do bad things, we sin, and we do, we say we feel convicted. That's not really this word. What we mean is I feel bad because I've done bad. And I feel shame because i gotta, I got to repent and go back to God for the thousandth time and say, I'm sorry. Forgive me. And receive the cleansing work of Jesus. This word convict is more of a courtroom word. Right? And when you are convicted in a courtroom, that's a whole other story. Changes the nuance of the word completely. Convicted in the sense that the trial is done, it's over, and the verdict is rendered. 
It's not just an, out, an inward feeling of, oh man, I messed up, but we were placed alongside the law, we were found guilty, the proof is in, the verdict is in, guilty. And when the Holy Spirit comes, he'll convict the world, that is, prove it's guilty by producing definitive evidence regarding the world, the sin of unbelief, before the cosmic throne of God. That's why people are cast into eternity in hell. They choose to pay the sin price of their own rather than believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Jesus said the Spirit convicts them of sin of unbelief so that they know and they feel and they sense that they're guilty and they're far from God. And as harsh as that may sound, it's actually a work of grace for those who come to faith, is it not? It's designed for men and women of, uh, uh, in the world like you and I to recognize our need of, of salvation and we turn from our sin and we turn to Jesus. Next he says he will convict the world concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you're not going to see me any longer. I'm going to ascend. And the Holy Spirit reveals the righteousness of God that God is perfect, God is holy, God is just, God is righteous and we're not. That's the point. And look at the text. Because God has highly exalted him by receiving him back into glory, seated at the right hand of God, and gave him the name which is above every name, is proof of the righteousness of Christ. In fact, we can't go into the presence of God without his righteousness. It's the righteousness of Christ who's seated on the throne, exalted in, in heaven. He his atoning sacrifice is our entrance. First John says, he's standing, saying, he's mine. Sin's forgiven. Verse 8, last part here. When he comes, he will convict the world concerning judgment. Verse 11, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. You know what he's saying? He's saying when Jesus came, lived the perfect life, died on the cross rose from the grave, the prince of this world is already judged. He has been conquered. Colossians tells us the same thing. So if God overpowers and judges the enemy and the forces of evil, how much more do you think and I think that we will get away from judging ourselves? That God will judge us. The Holy Spirit convicts the world that there is such a thing as judgment which is proved by the judgment of Satan, the powers of evil, all accomplished on the cross of Calvary. And the conviction is the hope that we turn and we say, you know what, I need God, I am a sinful man, I'm a sinful person, simply under the judgment of God, I've I, been in allegiance with Satan, but I need rescue, I need redemption, I need deliverance, I need pardon, I need salvation. What you find in Scripture is that the Father planned and initiates salvation. The perfect Son of God goes to the cross, pays our debt, pardon and purchases our redemption, rises from the dead. Salvation is completed, accomplished, and He, the Holy Spirit, applies that work to our hearts and to our souls. That's what Jesus meant in John chapter 3. You must be born again. You must be born again to enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. John 6, Jesus says, He, the Holy Spirit, is the giver of life. Listen to Titus chapter 3. Paul writes, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness. We can't earn our way. 
but according to his own mercy. That's how, that, that's, that's how he saved us. And then he writes, by the washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. That's why the work, this, this born again, this need to have a new heart is called regeneration, where God opens our eyes, frees our wills from the sin, bondage of sin, renews our hearts, transforms our minds. God the Holy Spirit, who's the one who brings about the application of salvation, convicting the believer of sin, regenerating the person with this new birth, that we may enter the kingdom of God. The cleansing, which says washing and regenerate is all the work of the Spirit. Gospels preached, the work of the Spirit, is as, he, as the gospel is being preached, as it's been revealed in Scripture, he convicts, he illuminates by the gospel preaching, produces repentance, brings conviction, and regenerates the heart. So our experience of salvation is the whole work of the Spirit of God. That's how important it is to understand. And as... All the work of the Holy Spirit in our life. It is, it is at salvation that we receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Which means we have been brought into the body of Christ. Christ is in us and we are in him. That happens at regeneration. When we have a new heart, you must be born again. Romans is pretty clear. Anyone, he says, who does not have the spirit of Christ, which is the spirit of the Holy Spirit, does not belong to him. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, for in one spirit we were all baptized. We were all baptized into one body, Jew or Greek, slave or free. We're all made to drink of one spirit. There's no such thing as regeneration and waiting on this second blessing that somehow we're going to get more of the Holy Spirit. Like the spirit is God. You don't get an arm and a leg on Tuesday and the other arm and a leg on Friday. Okay? Here's, the, here's, here's what the Bible says, that we should be continuously filled of the Holy Spirit. It's not how much of the Holy Spirit we have, it's how much of the Spirit has of us. Are we yielding? Are we listening? Are we responding? Are we crucifying the flesh by the Holy Spirit as the Spirit gets more of us? Now we get more of Him. When Paul talks about Ephesians, about being continually uh, uh, filled with the Spirit, that's commanded for us to do. It's how much of the Holy Spirit has control of you. And you know, I don't know if you know anything like me, but I'm a hard head and I want to live in the flesh at times. And he doesn't have a whole lot. I've got to repent of that. A couple, two other things quickly. The Holy Spirit work of salvation. And we see that the Holy Spirit is the one who, look what it says, seals and guarantees our future inheritance. If the Holy Spirit is the one who seals and guarantees our future inheritance. From our salvation, he seals it and he guarantees it. Ephesians 1.13. In him, that's in Christ, you also, when you heard the truth, the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. There's that revealing of scripture. And believed in Jesus, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Ephesians 4.30. Do not grieve the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed unto the day of redemption. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. It is God who establishes us through Christ. He has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us, given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. One more verse, 2 Timothy. 
Follow the pattern of the sound words that you've heard from me in the faith. In the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Praise God for his perseverance. Praise God for the preservation of the Holy Spirit. He guarantees, he seals our inheritance. Secondly, we see the work of sanctification. Now, 1 Peter, I could go all over it, I won't. The two verses, that's it. Peter in, I know the women are studying 1 Peter, that's awesome. Um, 1 Peter chapter 1. We see the Trinitarian work of salvation and sanctification. Look what it says. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are ex- elect, those are the elect and exiles of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, I always think of Italian cocuts when I think of that, Asia, Bithynia, verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ, the sprinkling with his blood. The word sanctification here is a noun. It is used as a, a one-time set-apart. Uh, uh, that's what sanctified means. Uh, hogios, it means to be set-apart. Snatched from the kingdom of darkness. Delivered into the kingdom of the beloved son of Jesus. First Colossians 1. Personally seated with Christ through his substitutionary death and resurrection from the grave. We've been set apart from one dark kingdom to the kingdom of Jesus. The second part of our sanctification is the process. Look what it says. Sanctification is set apart by the Spirit for obedience to Christ, right? So that's the process. We're all in that. If you're a Christian here, you're in the process of growing in the likeness of Jesus, okay? If you're not, you really got to check your faith because that's what God is doing in your life. That's what God is doing in my life, right? So he regenerates the heart. And he is working in us to resemble holiness, to resemble Jesus. He dwells in you. The Holy Spirit leads you and guides you. And he is working on you. Colossians chapter 2, very familiar verse. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, Paul writing, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation. Not work it in, work out your own salvation. How? With fear and trembling. Why? For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now that second part of that last, the last part of that verse, the word works in you and works for his good pleasure, is where we get the word energy or energize. It's God's enabling power and energy working in you for his good pleasure. And we know from scripture that's the Holy Spirit. God, the Holy Spirit, motivating us, giving us the ability to work and to, and to be, to be uh, not only just to work for his good pleasure, but to want to do it, to will. That's the, that, listen, it is the Holy Spirit, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, he gives us a new position, he, he uh, applies salvation to our life, and he infuses us with new power. And lastly, before we move on to number four, let me, let me just digress for a second because when we're talking about the salvation, people have asked the question, what about the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament? The first thing you got to understand, and I think from everything we've covered so far, is the Spirit of God is the third person of the Trinity, always existed. He's eternal. So therefore, the very active in the Old Testament, it was never a place where he was not active. 
It is true that on Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, his ministry took on a new role, a, a more complete role. But there is unity, family, between the Old Testament, the work of the Spirit in the Old Testament, and the New Testament. Some of it's a mystery, but some of it we could see in Scripture. There was the ministry of the Holy Spirit clearly in the lives of the prophets, the kings, and many others who were anointed with the Holy Spirit. In the Old, in the Old Testament, the Spirit came upon Joshua and David, even Saul. In the book of Judges, we see the Spirit coming upon various judges that God raised up to deliver Israel from their oppressors. The Holy Spirit anointed prophets to, to speak God's word in the Old Testament. Priests to intercede for the people of God and kings to lead Israel against the enemies of God. The Spirit came upon those who were working in the temple. Individuals people for specific tasks, sometimes in, irrespective of their spiritual condition. Sometimes the Spirit would leave. David, Saul. And yet, in the Old Testament, there were prophets like Ezekiel, like Joel, who spoke of the day, the future day, when the Holy Spirit would be poured out in a new way. Jesus even said himself in John chapter 7, speaking about the Spirit, he said, he said, now this he said about the Spirit. He was talking about the Spirit. Whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as of yet, the Spirit had not been given. Because Jesus was not yet glorified. Both the Old Testament and New Testament saints got saved, redeemed, received salvation the same way. And that's by faith. Okay, that's by faith. And that faith was made available and made possible by the Holy Spirit. But what you see on the day of Pentecost is not only the fulfillment of these Old Testament prophecies, but the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in a decisive event in redemptive history that had never happened before that everyone was pointing to. And ever since that event, we've been living in a completely different era, yet one we share with our brothers and sisters in the Old Testament. Faith repentance, renewal. But in the Old Testament, it seemed like not everyone that it was more selective and, and, and temporary in the Old Testament. But in John 14, Jesus said, even the spirit of truth, whom you cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him for he will dwell with you and will be in you. So what we find, again, there's some mystery in this, but we find in the New Testament that the Holy Spirit indwells believers universally. And believers are baptized, all of them, into one body. He, the Holy Spirit, indwells believers permanently, sealed by God through the Holy Spirit to the day of redemption. Every believer then is empowered by the Spirit for supernatural service. Every believer through spiritual gifts. There's this permanency and these promises of the Holy Spirit's work to, to sanctify, to transform, to guide, to illumine the permanent empowerment for the glory of Christ. So I hope that answers some of your questions. So lastly, we'll see the proclamation, which speaks of not only the mission of the church, but I just want to touch on, how much time I got? Okay, I just want to touch on also spiritual gifts. I waited till last. Everybody wants to talk about spiritual gifts first. And they don't get, in fact, when I took the class, I think it was the last two weeks. Understanding the deity, the personality, the regenerating work, the illuminating work, the, the, the convey, all that stuff is so important before you get to spiritual gifts. Okay? I'm just telling you. Every child of God, though, every child of God has been given a spiritual gift or gifts, spiritual abilities to be used 
to glorify God. Here at King's Chapel, this is our definition. Take it or leave it. A spiritual gift is an ability sovereignly given and empowered by God for his glory. Used in the building up of the body of Christ, the work of the ministry, and the advancement of the kingdom. Okay? That's our definition. There are places within Scripture that give you spiritual lists, gifts, the list of the spiritual gifts. I don't think it's exhaustive, but you'll see them in like Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12. And then Paul teaches this very important truth, I think, very important. We understand verse 11 of chapter 12. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who, the Holy Spirit, has a will, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. I want that spiritual gift. Uh, you, you didn't get it? You better, you better stop praying. You know what? God is sovereign. He's the one that makes that decision, not us. You can pray all you want. And there's nothing wrong with asking. At the end of the day, whatever spiritual gift God gave you, use it. For what? Sovereignly given for the glory of God, the building of the body, work of the ministry, the advancement of the kingdom. Got to be in the game. Not everybody's the finger. Some people the foot, Paul tells us. And then the question always is, oh, well, pastor, what about the sign gifts? What about prophecy and healings and, 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 and some of the, 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 this massive movement of speaking in tongues? I'm glad you asked. Is it for today? Do we have those signs today or did it end in the first century? You can go back on our sermon series in 1 Corinthians. I've dealt with all this, but let me just say, there's a, there's a group called cessationists. They believe it ended. There's no such, there's no such sign gifts of, that's going on today. In the New Testament, especially in the book of Acts, we studied the book together, God absolutely, as a sign, worked that, that gift of, of tongues in Pentecost for the Jewish people, Samarian, God-fearing Gentiles, and then, as you move on through Acts, to all the Greeks. And each one of those groups, you see the pouring out of the Holy Spirit and the speaking in tongues. That was for a reason. That was a sign to say God was working with these individual groups. No question in my mind. But does that mean it ended? Well, here at King's Chapel, we hold what's called open, but cautious. Me personally, open, but really cautious. I don't know if there's a New Testament verse that says it completely ended. I think God could do as he wishes and what he wants. But we see these movements. And I love my charismatic brothers and sisters, but I'll call some of the ones that are out there charismaniacs or the vineyard movement or the Toronto Blessing. I just saw a video this week. The, the Holy Spirit bar is open and they're drunk on the floor. Like, read your Bible. If the Holy Spirit doesn't do that, he wrote Scripture. I don't, I don't understand, but whatever. I don't want to get on a tangent here. We believe, that, we believe that God distributed all the gifts throughout the church body as he wills. Does he, does he give gifts of healing and, and miracles in tongues? Well, probably less common. Is it abused? Absolutely. Should we be cautious? Absolutely. I just don't want to say it's over. That, that's the way I stand, which is very careful. You've been here long enough. You know that. You know that. We had somebody stand up, thus saith the Lord, and we took care of that. He's not here no more. We didn't kill him or anything, okay? I'm just saying. <laughs> All right, let's turn to the mission of the church. 
Yeah, we took it. I never, you'll never see him again. No. <laughs> Proclamation of the gospel. Jesus is working today. Jesus is working. Jesus is still seeking and saving the lost. But now, he's not physically walking the earth. He is doing it through his spirit, filling the church, giving its power to the community of God's people to demonstrate and declare the gospel. He brings them by the power of the spirit together and we are to bring the message of salvation, reconciliation to the world. When we get to the end of Luke, I don't know when that will be, we'll read these words. Jesus said to them, it is written, the Christ should suffer. Third day rise from the dead, that's the gospel, okay? Well, he's suffering third day for sin. And that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem, right? There's the gospel. Jesus will suffer. Jesus will die. Jesus will rise from the dead. We'll call all people. They can have their sins forgiven. All nations and tongues and tribes. Verse 48. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you. Stay in the city until you are clothed with power on high. Acts chapter 1. Remember, Luke wrote Luke and Acts. Luke is what Jesus did in earthly ministry. Acts is what Jesus continues to do through the power and the work of the Spirit. Okay? That's what Luke is writing. Two volumes, one book. Acts 1. Jesus tells his disciples. Us as well. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And what happens? You'll be my witnesses. Jerusalem. Judea, Samaria, and to the remotest parts of the earth. And then, of course, Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit is given. He's poured out. So now we have the power and the enablement to introduce people to Jesus. The mission. Power of the Holy Spirit in mission. Jerusalem, which is home. Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth as the gospel goes out. So what he's saying is when you receive salvation, your sins are forgiven, your heart's been changed, you've been transformed, been born again, the Holy Spirit opens your eyes, renews your hearts, you see the beauty and glory of Christ, you turn from your sin, you believe on Jesus, and then the Spirit equips the church with power to be a witness to proclaim the gospel. Like throwing pebble in a pond in this, this uh, uh, concentric circles. It starts at home, Glenmont. Albany, New York, America, around the globe. That's the story from Acts to today. We're caught up in that story, family. That's our story. As, as members of King's Chapel, as part of the, the church, the local church, the universal church, we stand with the first century church living on mission by the power and the enablement of the Holy Spirit. That's our place in the story. It's continued for over 2,000 years. And the church is to continue the mission that Jesus began among the Jews, a kingdom established now among all the people of the earth. The only way this will be done is through the power and enabling work of the Holy Spirit. Listen, the church is the result of this mission of the Spirit. The church, in part, is the result of this mission of the Spirit. It is the Spirit who bears witness in the life of the church for the glory of God. It is the Spirit. He's not imprisoned in the institutional church. He's not reduced. It's just my spiritual life. 
But because the Spirit is the agent by which we become reconciled to God in Christ, the church must be ever ready to move and go and follow where the Spirit leads. The Holy Spirit empowers the church and goes ahead of the church as he continues his missionary journey. As the Father sent the Son, the Son sends the church and equips it with the Spirit to enable it to carry out its mission. I don't have these verses up. John 17, as you sent me, he's praying, as you sent me into the world, I have sent, I send them into the world. John 20, peace be with you as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Do you see? Mission does not belong first to the church, but to the Holy Spirit. Mission is, first of all, the work of the Spirit, and the church is to follow and to respond and to be the mouth. Demonstrating, declaring the gospel. We should never think that the spirit is the possession of the church. No, the church is the possession of the spirit. We must go where he leads us. And we must be equipped and empowered as the Holy Spirit, which John, Jesus tells us in John, wants to glorify and point to and reveal the beauty and glory of the Lord Jesus Christ in the gospel. That's what he wants to do. And he wants to use you and he wants to use me. And he wants to use this church as he, the Holy Spirit, leads, guides so that we can proclaim, we can demonstrate how good Jesus is. And that he came to die. And he came and he lived that life. You could never live that perfect life that God requires. And he did it in your place. And when you place your faith in him, your sins are forgiven. You've been forgiven of all your sins, past, present, and future. But not only that, Jesus clothes us with his righteousness. And the Spirit says, yes, follow me as I go. So that you would declare it with power and enablement that I can give you. So that others will come to know and love Jesus Christ. That's our mission. As the band comes up, it is God the Holy Spirit that is working. He not only reveals who God is and the ultimate author of Scripture, but he awakens the dead souls to the beauty and to the glory of Christ, convicting them of sin and pointing them to Jesus. He applies the work of Christ, the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus, on the cross for sinners by renewing and regenerating our heart, causing us to be born again. And then he empowers us and enables us to grow in the likeness of Christ, and then he sends us. Jesus sends us in the power of the Spirit in the Great Commission. Are we willing to go? Are we willing to follow? Are we willing to listen? Are we willing to partake in what the Holy Spirit is doing as he renews hearts through the preaching and declaration of the great and glorious Savior? His name is Jesus. Will you join him? Will we join him? I say yes, let's do it. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your salvation. Thank you for the plan from eternity past. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the willing sacrifice. Thank you for living that perfect life. Thank you for your atoning sacrifice. Thank you for the glorious resurrection from the grave, Lord Jesus. And thank you, Holy Spirit. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for opening our eyes, opening our minds. Maybe there's someone here that needs their eyes and, and heart opened and awakened. We pray, God, the Holy Spirit, you will do that. That they would see their sin and they would see the glorious Christ who made it possible 
for the forgiveness of sins, made it possible to be clothed in righteousness that is required, and made it possible for us to enter into the kingdom of God. Father, Son, and Spirit, we worship you, the one true and living God. In Jesus' name, amen.